0: Welcome back to the Just Be Your Bad Self podcast, where you are worthy of love just the way you are. I'm your host, Kimber Dutton, and today I'm talking with homeschool and parenting guru Julie Bogart. Julie is known for her common sense parenting and education advice. She's the author of the beloved book, The Brave Learner, which has brought joy and freedom to countless home educators. Her online coaching community, Brave Learner Home, the Brave Writer podcast, and Julie's popular Instagram account are lifelines for tens of thousands of weary parents all over the world. Julie's also the creator of the award-winning, innovative online writing program called Brave Writer, now 21 years old, serving 191 countries. She home-educated her five children, who are now globe-trotting adults. Today, Julie lives in Cincinnati, Ohio, and can be found sipping a cup of tea while planning her next visit to one of her lifelong learning kids. I am so excited to share this podcast with you all. I have been a fan of Julie's for several years now, and I was so thrilled when she agreed to come on this podcast. I hope that those of you who aren't parents or educators aren't turned off by the fact that That this is what Julie has made her life's work because she has such gems of wisdom in here that I think everyone needs to hear. If you are someone who's listening who is not an educator or a parent, I recommend especially listening to the second half of this podcast where we really start to dive into the juicy stuff in Julie's new book, Raising Critical Thinkers where we talk about critical thinking and why it's so important in in all relationships. This podcast episode has something of value for everyone who's listening to it right now. So be sure to stick around till the end. Julie, thank you so much for being here today. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Oh, I'm
1: thrilled to be here. It's great to meet you.
0: Let's let's give the audience a little overview of who you are and what you do. Go ahead and introduce yourself for us.
1: Oh, wonderful. So, my name is Julie Bogart. Uh, I grew up in California, but today I live in Cincinnati, Ohio. I have been a writer for pretty much my entire life. My mother is 83 and has written 75 published books. So, I grew up around writing from a very young age, and as I got into my adulthood and was raising my children, I discovered, because I was in the homeschooling community, that there was a dearth of good writing programs available for parents that really helped them understand the self-expression part of writing, not just the rules of grammar. And as a result, I started sharing those experiences and those tools and those practices that I had been living my whole life, some of which my mother had led me in. And it resonated with our community. And so I launched a company in January of 2000, and I called it Brave Writer because it does take quite a bit of courage to enter into self expression and to support the writing of your kids. We've been doing that for 22 years. We've got, you know, 191 countries of families that have used our materials and have grown and loved it. And out of that experience, I've had the opportunity to write some really awesome books. My first one was The Brave Learner, which is all about parenting and education at home. And then this second one that is just coming out in February is called Raising Critical Thinkers. So that background really does support the work that I continue to do today.
0: And I have to say here, so I found you. I was raised in a homeschooled family. I was raised in the military. We moved around a lot. It's just made more sense in a lot of ways to be homeschooled. And I was lucky enough that my mom is also a writer. She was an English history major, Shakespeare buff. Are you really? This is why I'm like, you you remind me so much of my mom. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I would say history major. I love Shakespeare. I have an acting background. Yeah, very much.
0: You guys need to be friends. You would love each other. (laughs) We do. So I, yeah, my mom, I, I came from a very strong writing background and then ended up going to public school on and off. And and then in high school, and I always had my mom, like, my mom was so much, like, more critical of my English papers than my high school teachers were, because she's like, no, you, you can do better than this. I know you could do better than this. And so I had, I came from a very strong writing background. But then as an adult with kids, I'm not an English major. I don't, you know, I don't know all the things, even though I come from a strong background, I I majored in music. And so when I discovered you through a local homeschool group, I was like, this is everything that I grew up with, but in a very awesome, doable format that helps me as a parent know how to teach my kids. It was really cool to find you.
1: Oh, that's so wonderful to hear. I think what's a memory for most people who've been in school is this red pen syndrome of a school teacher, where you pour out your heart maybe you know if if you want to take the risk to really express yourself in writing or you put in the work trying to match all the protocols that they've given you and then you get it back and there's no dialogue all you see are like a squiggle mark under a misspelled word or something like the words vague in the margin and you're just left with this sort of empty feeling like all they noticed were a couple of errors I made and then they give me a b plus and I don't know Why it wasn't a B or an A? I don't know what the plus means. I don't know, is this compared to other people or compared to my last paper? Interestingly, there are a pair of researchers that I read years ago who wrote a book about writing and they did a study to see what were the effects of all these red marks on student writing. And so they went through and collated all these papers to see if the next paper the student wrote if they improved in the areas that the previous paper had margin notes, right? So the teacher had said, hey, you're too vague here. You need to support this assertion. Did they do that better in the next paper? And they discovered that there was zero correlation between the comments the teacher made and the output in the next paper. If that doesn't tell you the failure of the system, the way that we teach writing in Brave Writer is we read people's writing like we're readers. And we dialogue as a conversation throughout the writing. So if a student writes a piece, right, and they are saying things like, you know, I got up in the morning and I played with my dog. It's a very straightforward sentence. But in our class, the teacher, the instructor would comment on that immediately. She would say, oh, my gosh, I can't wait to read the rest of this writing. You were playing with your dog. I wonder what game you played then she keeps reading. The next line might say, I threw the ball, the dog got it, and he punctured it with his tooth. And the the writing coach would write back, punctured is such a strong verb. And so what you start seeing is there's this layered effect of affirming what's working, reacting as a reader, and giving that sort of support and encouragement. And when they run up against something that's opaque or doesn't quite meet, you know, the reader expectation of clarity, They might even say something like that. Oh, I'm very curious about this. You've led me this far. And now I want to know what else happened. And so instead of it being like unclear, too vague, not enough detail, which is more like an evaluator, we engage the writer as a reader. And we have discovered that students really respond to that. Like they get excited to add more detail or correct a misimpression or to celebrate a success and try and have that effect again. And that's really the dialogue that should exist between a writing coach and a writer.
0: That's so brilliant. As soon as you said what you did about the red pen syndrome and, and the way teachers respond to papers, I had the memory of being in my senior year of high school, AP Lit class, spending, I stayed up all night. I pulled, up an, all, I pulled an all-nighter really working hard on, on a paper on Othello that I wrote. I turned it in. I was really proud of it. I had my, you know, my Shakespeare buff English professor mom look at it. And she was like, yep, this is a college level paper. So excited, turned it in, got it back. There was a big B written on it and a, a line that said, rework this. That was the only feedback I got. And, and the, the, the English teacher was the football coach. I was super oh, wow. intimidated by him. And I, I was too scared to even go ask him, what does this mean? My mom's like, you need to talk to him about this. And I was like, mm, I'll just take the B. And that was such a, it's such a sad and I think probably very common experience. And it really suppresses this creative urge that we all have, right? We want to do good creative work. But when that's the kind of feedback we receive, it's super discouraging and unmotivating. So I think that's so brilliant the way you work that. I
1: think we've been misled to believe that the role of a teacher is to have a standard and a a set of expectations that they enforce rather than as a coach who inspires. You know, you had an English teacher who was a football coach. That's not how he coached his players. I can guarantee you when a guy missed a pass, he didn't just say, do better next time. He gave him pointers. He talked to him about where his footwork footwork was being placed and whether his eyes were actually down the field or on the ball and whether or not he had his hands open in the right way. We give feedback when we coach, but when we're teaching, we don't understand that that's actually what we're supposed to be doing. We think of ourselves as somehow enforcing a set of standards that a child is supposed to magically know how to meet. So yeah, that's one of the one of the challenges, and we've discovered with writing that when you actually activate the writing voice of a child, the same way we activate their speaking voices, they have so much to say. So if you have a kid who hates writing, it just means that their voice has not yet been activated. They don't know that the stuff that lives inside of them is worthy of the page and that you'll be interested in it. So you can start right there. You can jot down their oral expression on their behalf. Catch them in the act. Don't ask them for it. Just listen along. And when they start telling you a little story, grab a piece of paper and a pen, start jotting down their words. They might say to you, you know, mom, what are you doing? And you can just say back, this is so good. I don't want to forget it. So I'm writing it down. Keep going. And that night at dinner, pull that sheet of paper out and say to the family, you know, Tommy was telling me about, you know, Rocky, the dog chasing the squirrel in the backyard. It was so good. I was afraid I'd forget it. So I wrote it down. I just want to read it to you. Start valuing their speech, get some of it in writing, share it with an interested audience,
0: and you will literally transform how your kids think
1: about writing instantly. So
0: this kind of leads into what I want to talk about, which is this idea of, I think I told you when I talked to you, I want to talk about authenticity in education and education and really, you know, this term child-led learning. Mm. tapping into your child's creativity that's already there, kind of letting them lead the way. I want to talk about that both maybe in a homeschool setting and in a public school setting, how we can encourage that, how we can tap into this innate sense of wanting to learn and discover more things about the world within education. Can you talk to us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so I think it is kind of a buzzword when we talk about child-led learning What we're trying to do is correct the error of the past, which was very much instructor or teacher-led learning. And if we think back to traditional educational models from the early 20th century, most public school was didactic. It was a teacher giving information, students be tested on it, and then they'd move on to the next form. As the decades unwound in the 20th century, there was an awareness that one of the missing ingredients was the actual lived experience of children, their passions, their backgrounds, their experiences. Belvox and Palo Freire are two of these education reformers who have really brought into our awareness that children have full minds and have already brought with them rich experiences and vision and desires that influence what they learn. Reggio Schooling, Montessori, Waldorf, these are all models that are trying to tap into the innate hunger to learn that is a part of every child. Where we can support our children as parents, whether they're at home or they're in public school, is taking them seriously. When you have a child who tells you that they're really passionate about a video game, it's not discounting that as though it's mere entertainment as a reward for doing the real work of school. It's actually being curious and investigating with them what they're getting out of it. Watch them play, be interested in when they feel triumphant, when they feel despondent, when they think there's a skill they need to learn. As we invest ourselves in being curious about our children's interests, we will actually be given windows of insight into how they do learn, which can be used in other places. So Example, you've got a kid, he's in Minecraft, he's building his world, he's having some failures, he's struggling to master certain techniques. When you're doing the math homework with him later, can you revisit that stick-to-itiveness that he demonstrated in Minecraft and say, you know what, I know you know how to do hard things because I watched you building this world. I watched you stick to it. What support can I offer you right now to help you stick to this? What can I do? to help that grow in this area. Too often, we are focused on child-led learning as meaning abandoning parental influence and only focusing on what they like, when really, it's just child-led. It's not child-centered. It means that we actually know our children well enough to support their growth and development because we've observed them, we know them, we've paid attention to them.
0: As you were talking, it just reminded me back of when we were talking about public school teachers teaching as if there's this standard that needs to be met. And I think that's really rubbed off t- onto us as parents oh. in so many different ways. You know, I, there's so much pressure that your kids take music lessons and dance lessons or straight A students in school or on the football team or whatever. There's all these things that we feel like our kids should be doing to be successful humans How do we how do we have a mindset shift and what should that mindset shift even be to get away from that? This is how this is where you need to be to more following their interests and still allowing them to grow and learn. I think part of what
1: happens when we have a child is we give birth to a human being and a fantasy simultaneously. So while we're holding this baby in our arms, it's almost like we can see their future. But it's it's a fantasy. It's idealism. And thank God. Right. The fantasy is what gives us the motivation and energy. If we could see on day one the fits our teenagers are going to give us or the frustration we're going to feel with our nine-year-old, we might quit before we began. So the fantasy has value. It allows us to imbue the experience with some idealism that supports the hard work that parenting really requires. But as our children get older, we have to keep seeding that territory. These are actual living, breathing human beings who are different than their parents, who have their own aspirations and secret desires. The best families are where parents actually understand and know their children and act as servants to that vision. I often say parents can provide three things to their kids, and this really is it. You know, love is the umbrella. But then here are the three practical things you could provide. First, you can provide money. They can't pay for stuff, their kids. You know, maybe at 16, they start being able to pay for a few things, but they can't pay for those dance lessons. So you're going to pay for them or you're going to barter and get them those lessons in some meaningful way. So resource comes from parents. Second, transportation. They cannot get anywhere. So you're going to drive them or coordinate with someone else or host the thing in your home. You're going to take them places for experiences that they can't get for themselves. So, so far we have money. And we have driving places, fly them on planes if necessary. The third thing, and this is the most critical piece that any parent can provide a child is research. We have access to information that kids don't know how to get. So if you have a child asking questions about the stars and the moon, they don't know there's an observatory in their town. They don't know there are hobbyist astronomers they could meet. That's something you can find out for them and make happen. If your child is showing a lot of interest in a video game rather than fighting it so much. Couldn't you show them esports online? Couldn't you expose them to the journey a person goes through to write a video game? What are all the skills and tools? What kind of educational background you can provide for your children? Context, more information, more opportunity, and more connections. And that's what it means to be a parent. Child-led only means you're paying attention to your child. But ultimately, it is a parent who can make that magic happen. I Do you have time? I'll give you a story of how this worked with my son, Jacob. So my third child, uh, second boy, he became fascinated with the sky, mostly because of big numbers. Like it was staggering to him, for instance, that, you know, the Pluto, if, if we were to use a scaled model of the solar system by a billion, factor of a billion, if we were standing in our neighborhood, The next child who was going to stand where Pluto would be would have to be over three miles away. Like, I remember him just being like, Whoa, space (laughs) is huge, right? So, we moved to Cincinnati at that time, and there's like an art, an observatory here that is really well known nationally. So, we went, we looked through these amazing telescopes, we met these old men, you know, these hobbyist astronomers who just want young children to talk to all day long. It was amazing. And then he said to us one night at dinner, Mom, I want to go. Mom, dad, I want to go to space camp. And we were broke. We didn't have money. And at the time, I just said, Oh, wouldn't that be nice? You know, we can't afford it. But fortunately, he had a dad who actually heard him. And his dad said, Oh, Jake, I think you could raise the money to go to space camp. How much is it? We figured it out. It was like $850. And he's like, Yeah, we'll just start a cookie business. I'm like, What are you guys talking about? And John said, You know, neighbors would love warm homemade. Chocolate chip cookies on a Sunday night, and you could just go around and take orders and sell them. So I immediately said, This is a failing idea. Like everyone will be compassionate one time and he'll make, you know, a hundred bucks, but there's no way he's going to get to $850 on the backs of our neighborhood. How wrong I was. John hmm. and Jacob got a clipboard. They went door to door. They took a bunch of orders. He had regular customers for at least two years. He even back then was able to sell cookies at Walmart and Kroger in the front made $100 each of those days. He paid for his own trip, flew by himself. We didn't go with him. He was 12 years old, went to Huntsville, Alabama, experienced space camp, thought he had wanted to be an astronaut, not got home and said, yeah, I don't want to be an astronaut and was done. (laughs) But here's the amazing thing. That experience, even though he didn't become an astronaut, taught him. That if he wanted something, he could get it. He could actually find a way to fund it. And that kid today is thirty years old, and he has raised hundreds of thousands of dollars in fellowships and grants and scholarships over his career of being a student as an adult law school in regular school because he had this very early experience of someone taking his desires that seriously. Now I'm not saying that every kid will jump on this bandwagon and execute. I have four other kids who never did that, right? But Jacob did. And I think part of what we need to do is actually believe in their dreams and do what we can to take out the roadblocks and see how far they go.
0: Oh, that's such a awesome story. I, so we're talking about what to provide for them. You listed your, your three things and then also talk about taking them seriously and believing yes. in their dreams with them. What are, are there things that we need to? let go of that maybe we're taught to hold too tight to as parents?
1: Yes. Oh my gosh, such a fabulous question. So one of the biggest mistakes we make is that when a child shows any interest in something we value, we expect them to become a pro at it. So for instance, I have a son who loved chess. Well, chess is a prestige subject. I wanted everyone to know he played chess because I got so much validation from my community, right? And when he actually joined a chess club and became first board, you know, the top player, I went to every single chess match. Now, let me just point out how boring chess is. (laughs) You stand and watch a game where it's silent and the biggest action is moving a piece two forward and two to the side. You don't know if it's going right or left. I mean, literally that's what chess is. But there I was, such a proud parent. When that same son was a junior in high school, One day he yelled for me, hey, mom, come here. I need to show you something. And I was like the distracted business working mother. I'm like, I'm busy. I'm typing. And he says, no, mom, I need you to come now. And I said, can't you just tell me? And he goes, mom, come now. And finally, you know, my brain woke up. I walked over and he said, I'm in the middle of a video game battle right now. I'm on a team. We're ranked 10th in the world. And this game is being broadcast in South Korea and I want you to watch me play. And in that split second, I was like, wait a minute. How do I not know this about his life? How do I not know he is this good at video games? How have I never watched him play? So I sat there, and by the way, video games far more interesting than chess. (laughs) Things were blowing up. There was music. There were sounds. There was like scary moments where I thought he was going to die, and then he somehow didn't. It was very exciting. I didn't fully understand it, but I'm like watching him play. When the game was over, he showed me his leaderboard. He was like the top score on all these very meaningful metrics. And it suddenly dawned on me how much parents ignore what their kids value if it doesn't give them prestige and how much we overvalue what makes us look good. So one of the things you want to be careful to do is to not assume because your daughter loves ballet or your son plays violin or your other child is into Latin, that that makes those superior to the kid who really loves making, you know, clay earrings or wants to build a great big Lego Death Star. There is no area that a child is interested in that doesn't have value to their growth and learning. And it is up to us to discover the inherent value and to support that child. So we have to let go of our fantasies. That's our bottom line need as parents. Join with the real, let go of the ideal.
0: And I think I think part of the reason we hold on to these fantasies so tightly at least I'm discovering for myself is because when you become a parent, not only do you realize <laughs> that your kids aren't necessarily going to live up to these fantasies the way you have them planned, but you also realize how much you give up to be a parent? How much of Uh, yourself you give up for these kids? And so some of us really, you know, we get our our ego boosts and our we live vicariously through our kids. And so when we push them so hard for things, so much of our own ego is tied up in that. How do you how do you balance parenthood and wanting to give and support your kids' dreams and also maintain this sense of self through that. Oh my goodness. So let's
1: go on a journey together. Back when you were a child, there were things that you imagined would be available to you as an adult that you could not do when you were 10 or 12 or even 15, right? Like you looked ahead to adulthood as this golden time of life where nobody would limit you. Right. No one would tell you it's time to go to bed. No one would tell you you couldn't have the second Oreo cookie. No one would tell you that that horror movie is too upsetting to watch before you go to sleep at one in the morning. That's what parents do. So when you're a kid, you're looking forward to this future of autonomy and freedom and maybe even specific things that you could accomplish, whether it's a career goal or an artistic goal or a social value goal, like doing good in the world. And you imagine that you'll have unfettered access to all those things. And then you get married or you develop a partner or you get pregnant and you have a child. And suddenly it feels like you are sent back to the beginning of the game board of life, right? Like go back to go start over. You're going to have to look at toddler toys again. You're going to have to learn the times tables again. Like it's, it's a little cruel. Because you got to adulthood and then you never really fully drank at the fountain of adulthood. And so you're right. What we do then is we invest the adult fantasies we didn't realize in our children because that's what adulthood now looks like. It looks like helping our kids do the things we aren't really doing. So when I tell the women in particular who follow me, men have less of a problem with this. They're used to entitlement for their interests. Our culture really supports that. But for women, we're supposed to be self-sacrificing. We're supposed to love parenting. So what I always say is, I want you to be an awesome adult. I want you to be an awesome adult. I want you to embrace and own the piece of yourself that you imagined you'd get to have, whether that's running a marathon, writing, um, having a job, Being a part of a volunteer program, playing a musical instrument, whatever it is, travel, developing, you know, some kind of side professional gig, going to grad school, whatever it is, keep your foot in the door. Make sure there is some part of you that is alive to the awesomeness of being an adult. And here's what will happen if you do that you will actually make adulthood look attractive to your kids. If you sacrifice your vision of adulthood and live a weary, unhappy adult life of responsibility, your kids will want to be Peter Pan forever. They're going to want to be dependent on you and not grow up and not take on responsibility. But if they see that adulthood holds this awesome opportunity for them and there are some of these hoops they have to get through to have that life, they will be more motivated. So if I give you an example from my kids, Uh, I always kept room for writing. And from a very early stage, I used to go to the library for three hours a week alone in the evening. I would book a room and I would either write or I would cry or I would take a nap or I would just rest. Like literally, I just used those three hours for whatever I needed them for. And I needed them for all of those at various moments because parenting and marriage are hard. And sometimes all I had left was emotion. Mm -hmm. But I kept some of that writing alive. When I started my business, I started small, it matched the scale of my family, but I always had it to go to as a way to experience the adult that I am. I went to grad school while I was running business and homeschooling. I did it one class a semester, it took me four years, but it was a way for me to stay connected to my intellectual vitality, a group and community of adults, with a pursuit that had always been a dream of mine. I think, in the end, we give our children permission to have their dreams when we actually have our own dreams. Otherwise, their dreams become our dreams and we are hijacking their journey.
0: I was lucky enough to find you when my, a few years ago when my kids were still, well, my kids are still very little, but they were even littler. And I, I think I listened to a podcast episode when you talk about being an awesome adult. And that it was such a relief <laughs> to feel like because I think as moms, we need a reason that's not self-serving to to be a little selfish, right? So yes. it's such a relief to hear that by you being an awesome adult and you following your dreams, you're help you're still helping your kids. And that's and so right. it's so nice when my daughter, I have a six year old and Sometimes I'll go out with friends, or I'll go do I'll, I'll go do something that's just for me. And when she questions it or wants to come with me, it's so nice to have that in my back pocket to be able to say, you know what, some things you you get to do when you're grown up, and it's really fun to be a grown up, or it's really fun to be a mom because I get to do this, 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 I and kind of that. dangle that as like a it's good to grow because I do she's one that she wants to be what I asked her what she wanted to be when she grew up and she wants to be a mermaid that lives with her mom <laughs> They're adorable so I, I want her to know like no it's good to be a grown-up you get to do fun things and so it was really it came at a really good time early on in my parenting to be able to to own that and now I've got this podcast that I'm doing yes retreats for people and I'm still a mom and I still get to do that but I I'm a whole person. I I don't feel like I've given up who I am to be a mom. And so I don't resent my kids. And in a lot of ways, I think it makes me a better mom.
1: A thousand percent. In fact, I had someone ask me today, what do you do when your child just doesn't care about the, it's a teen, you know, about the vision for the future that I'm trying to cast and I'm working so hard and he doesn't understand, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, you could care less. You could just care less. But you can't care less if you don't have something else to care about. And our kids know when we've hung all our hopes on them. It's a lot of pressure. And some kids will try to perform up to that pressure and have a breakdown, you know, in their 30s when they're like, oh, my gosh, I I never had a childhood. I was just trying to fulfill my parents' dream to be the best swimmer I could be. Right. So there's that kind of reaction. But the other reaction is to not try because they do not want to disappoint you. Your children's number one need from you is approval. That's the number one need. Admiration, admire your kids. So if you are pressing and not admiring, they will resist more because it's so painful to have your parent not admire you. So one of the ways to care less is to have something else to care about. If you have something you're invested in and let's say your child, you're trying to do homework with them and they're really being swirly, and you just say, you know what? I'm here to be a resource to you. This is your homework. I already did homework. I'm done with school. If you need me, I'll be in the other room editing my podcast. It is a different experience than being petulant, like, well, if you're going to be that way, I can't help you, which just feels like you're engaged in this head to head combat. But if you are literally like, you know what? My life is filled with people who enjoy my company. You're not enjoying mine right now. All right. Well, go do your thing. I've got this other stuff to do. It It's a different dynamic. It, it shifts the energy in that interaction.
0: This is what talking to you just reminds me so much. I, I have your book, The Brave Learner, and I love that you talk about finding enchantment in learning and, and bringing the home into homeschool. And you kind of paint this very cozy, warm, enchanting picture of education. But you're also a very real human who's had five kids <laughs> you know you know what it's like <laughs> to be a parrot and you know that it's not all roses, but but you have such good down to earth ways to approach things. So this is this is a plug from me for your book that people oh, should. Well read thank it. you. Thank you. It's it's just so beautifully written, but I want to talk a little bit more about um your book that hasn't come out yet, right? Yes, right. It'll be out on February first, right. So tell so- us about that.
1: Well, thank you. The name of the book is Raising Critical Thinkers. The subtitle is A Parrot's Guide to Growing Wise Kids in the Digital Age. And I wrote this book partly because of my own journey in adulthood. You know, the internet became a thing midway through my life around 35, 36 years old. So I have a very strong memory of life before online living. And then I have an adult experience of watching us go from blogging and what I thought was like this kumbaya experience of all of us getting to know each other and it would be build brotherly love around the world right to just it blowing up in a sea of trolling pixels right people just bludgeoning each other with their opinions and their other experts and their disagreements and uh, during the the internet era I was a member of many email lists I did grad school I had a blog myself I was running Brave Writer Social media started, and that really changed the dynamics even further. And all that time, what I was witnessing was a loss of critical thinking, of seeking to understand and learn just for the sake of learning, not always feeling like every statement is a voting opportunity. Think what the internet has done is it's turned all discussion into a zero-sum game. You either agree or you disagree, and you do it forcefully. And it's either aligned with your community or it is offending your community. Mm -hmm. And there's just this this intensity and speed of response that is undermining good critical thinking and also just healthy self-esteem and a sense of belonging in the world. So as we're raising children, it just occurred to me that there were tools that I've written and created for our online classes that I have used in my own work as an academic that would really be valuable to parents. And, you know, the heart of this book is not like a bunch of descriptions of confirmation bias and the ostrich effect. It's really about how to preserve and protect a relationship with your child when you don't agree, when that child is encountering ideas that make you uncomfortable, when you are out in the world as a family, trying to figure out how to make sense of disparate information that comes at you like a fire hose. And you don't know how to evaluate it, let alone evaluate it with your child who's on TikTok, who's on Twitter, who's on Facebook and Instagram, and they are being slammed, slammed with all kinds of data points and they don't know how to evaluate them. So this book, it takes a relational approach, but it is very much about the zeitgeist we're in, hoping to kind of strip this polarization out of our families, because we can only start in our families. You know, we're not going to change society at large, but if families change, if the culture that our children grow up in at home changes, it will trickle out into the community.
0: I'm excited to read this just for me, (laughs) (laughs) whether or not I bring my kids into it. I, this, you know, everybody knows the past few years, all the political upheaval and everything with COVID and everything was so polarizing and it definitely affected my family. My husband and I came down on different sides of a lot of issues. And I've, I've seen marriages fall apart the last couple of years because of that. And there's not, people don't know how to c- communicate about it in a loving, respectful way. We, we went to a couple of counseling sessions over some yes. things. It's, it's really tricky. So can you give us a little preview of maybe some strategies or things that you talk about in your book.
1: Yes. So the original title of the book was raising self-aware thinkers. And my editor wanted it to be critical thinkers because critical thinking is such a, a big deal right now. And and it is critical thinking, but the essential practice of a critical thinker is self-awareness first. We tend to think critical thinking is about figuring out what the other person believes and then examining it for its flaws. It's sort mm-hmm. of an outward focused way of thinking about thinking. But the truth is, until you've done a good assessment of your own background, the things that are shaping and influencing you while you're doing your processing of learning, you will be so invisibly controlled by all of those factors, there will be no room for you to actually think critically about what you're reading. So let me give you an example. Several years ago, a couple decades ago, actually, I was looking into an opinion that was different than my husband's. I like that you brought that up because this will go right with it. And we got in a pretty big argument. And yet I really wanted to do this research. And he had kind of, in a weird sort of backhanded way, forbidden it by saying, well, if you do this kind of research, I don't know what I'll think of you kind of thing. And so we went to bed one night and I waited for him to fall asleep. And I snuck down the stairs of my house. And I came in this room and locked the door and I opened up my computer. And by then I was trembling head to toe. I was in a cold sweat and I couldn't even type. I was so nervous because I was worried that I was going to find out something that would really be dangerous to me. And yet I had to know the truth. I was tired of other people telling me that this thing was not okay for me to know. So I went, I looked it up, started reading, calmed right down. I was like, oh, well, here's the information. I'm alone. I'm, it's the middle of the night. There's no one here to evaluate what I think about it. I don't have to render a verdict. I can simply read and let the information sit alongside my current set of beliefs. Just knowing that the information exists and that I have read it in first person was enough. But then I knew I had to go to bed. And the thought crossed my mind. This give you a window of insight into me. I thought, what if I die before I wake up and my husband wakes up and sees that this was the last website (laughs) I've been on before my death? So I cleared my browser history completely, got rid of even passwords and everything just to protect myself because you're right. We have created a culture where the stakes are so high. The only way we're willing to relate to people is absolute agreement. And we have completely lost track of the idea that it is okay to both read and consider ideas that you may not even eventually adopt, but just for the sake of getting on the inside of how that viewpoint came to be and what role it plays in the world and what value it has to the people who hold it. So the first place we begin with ourselves and with our children is check in with your body. If you're reading a post on Facebook and you noticed immediately that you're in a hurry, to get to that fact that you can use to quash the argument, if you notice that feeling of righteous indignation or fear or anxiety rising up in you, that's a moment to pause and actually ask the question, well, where's that coming from? In my case, it was my marriage, it was my community, it was the information I had heard in books I had read. And it meant that if I were to cross over into considering this information, I was gonna get ejected from very valuable communities. And that's what we're mostly doing. We are protecting our relationships. We are saying, I have to agree with these beliefs so the members of the people's group that I'm a part of will still let me stay. The beginning then of critical thinking is recognizing when that influence is undue pressure and how to start getting brave enough to let yourself have a deeper experience of all the range of views. One way we do it with our kids is training them to be deep readers. The internet has taken that away. You know, silent reading for 20 minutes, one book in chronological order each day, around the family with your phone in a different room turned off so it doesn't distract your brain. We need spaces where we're not being called on to render an opinion or a reaction. The thumbs up, thumbs down, that is the cruelest tool during an attempt to grow your critical thinking skills. You should not be required to agree and disagree instantly. Multiple choice testing has caused us to think that there is one right answer delivered by an authority and everyone will agree and it needs to be done under time pressure. Let that stuff go. That has nothing to do with life on social media. You are not required to agree and disagree. It's okay to just take in information. And we want to help our kids know what to do when they take it in and it causes a panic.
0: I man, have so many thoughts going as you were talking. The first one, I love that you talk about relationships and how we think a lot of times of information affecting our relationships. We don't really think about how much our relationships affect the information that we're okay Oh, my with. gosh. Yes. Yes, that is the core of my book. Yeah and and that's that's what pulled me through my marriage when we were you mm. know on opposite sides politically this is what this is what saved us we watched some video about when you're when you're presented with with information that goes against like some of your core values and beliefs we treat it as like a physical attack right our bodies yes. get all hyped up and and we go into defense defense mode And anyways, this is a fabulous video. I'll link to it on the resources of my my podcast because it's really good. I made my husband watch it with me because it's pretty non-biased, right? The video is. Yeah. But it's teaching us why we're biased towards certain things. And we were able to, he and I, realize that even though we don't agree with each other, a large part of the reason we choose to believe what we believe politically or you know on a variety my husband and I are very different in many ways yeah <laughs> on a variety yeah. of topics is because of the social groups that we're in he and i are very different but the people we hang out with and interact with outside of our marriage are more like us he has he's a he's a lineman he has very conservative yes masculine friends and and family his family is different than mine in that way i have more artsy, liberal friends, and we were able to decide, we were able to say, I see why you believe this. And I see that it would put your relationships in jeopardy to believe otherwise. I love you enough that we we can be okay and not have to feel the same way about this topic. We don't talk about those things very often, But we can at least respect each other to understand that there are reasons we believe the way we believe.
1: Wow. This is so much fun for me to have this conversation with you as this book is launching, because that is the kind of insight that I'm really hoping parents can take from this, whether it's with a child who's going to have a very divergent position from the whole family, or the family that takes a divergent position from their religious community, or, you know, people within MySpace homeschooling who suddenly decide to try public school. The pressure of community to be ideological is all defensive. It's all fear-based. It's all a desire for control in an existential reality where we don't have control. So we sort of feel like if I have numbers, this group, then I'm safe. But the fact of the matter is we actually deepen the solutions that we can achieve for families, marriages, schools, society, countries, when we broaden to include everyone, What even the people we sh- sharply disagree with. And honestly, it's okay to retain your point of view when you are listening to and reading and understanding someone else's. Getting to the point where you understand why a view logically coheres for another person is the task of critical thinking. That is the task. The task is not to decide if you agree or not. It's to understand all the features and contours that make that view logical and rational for the person who holds it.
0: Yes. And I I obviously feel super passionate about this because that's what my podcast is about. It's called Just just Be Your Bad Self. And I I don't think I had the words really to be able to say this is what my podcast is about. But I invite people from all different ethnicities, religious backgrounds, sexual orientations, gender identities, because my background, and everybody listening to my podcast knows this already, is I I grew up Mormon. I'm in Utah. I was raised in the LDS church. And I, it's about six years ago stumbled upon some information that changed my way of thinking and i was lucky enough to have a community because my family also left so my relationships weren't as threatened. stressed or threatened yes. so i had a safe space to go to go to as i was evaluating this information but since leaving i found myself examining everything that i ever thought yes yes, yes. and so when i started this podcast it would have been very easy for me to step into kind of do a little lateral transition from I'm a Mormon. Now I'm an ex-Mormon and I hate all things to do with my religion. And I'm only having people on who have left the church. And that's felt so wrong to me because that's, that's not what I'm about. I want this idea of an examined life. And everyone has a reason for believing what they believe. Everyone has a reason for doing what they do. And so I've had people in the church out of the church nothing to do with the church on here because i just i want people to see what you're talking about which is yes yeah t- this self-aware thinking and and just because you think something doesn't mean someone else doesn't have a good reason for thinking the way they do
1: well and once you've gone through a change in belief particularly one of the scale that you're describing you also know that that can happen at any time you start to recognize that just latching on now, let's say to a scientific worldview doesn't save you either, right? Like there is, I remember very early on when I was doing some reevaluation about my own religious background, I went to a site that was called Walk Away from Faith and it was showing ex-Mormons, ex-Christians, ex-Catholics, like all these different people. And so many of them just went from trusting the authority of the church they had been in to suddenly trusting the authority of scientists when they had no skill or background in science. And I remember thinking to myself, well, this feels identical. The, the spirit behind the belief structure was identical. It was a craving to be certain and to have authorities confer on them being right. But I was trying to leave that behind. That yes. was what I was trying to leave behind was Well, wait a minute, if I don't have the credentials to evaluate this, and who does? Like when I hear debates about, let's say, climate change, my background is history and theology. Just how effective are my evaluations of the arguments being presented to me? So then we have to ask deeper questions like, what are the agendas that are behind these presentation of facts? Who are the authorities making these calls? What consensus is there among these people in their peer group? Who are the people doing the critiquing and why? And at a certain point, I may come to a tentative belief that I've put all these pieces together and I'm taking this position. But once I've done all that work, I'm also fully aware that I'm not qualified actually to evaluate the tools, the records, the studies, the methods they use to draw these conclusions. So it's with some humility. And I feel like one of the pieces missing in all of these conversations is a recognition of our own skill sets. We can read, but when we read, we feel like experts. Reading is not the same as having a direct experience or having the direct education. And then beyond that, it's not the same as having an encounter. So just to give you a quick example, I could read a travel guide about Morocco. And think that I know all about Morocco. But without having gone there, wouldn't we say, you probably don't really know Morocco? We could say, I've read all about violins. I know who makes them. I know what kind of music is written for them. If I've never heard a violin, do I know violins? We tend to read information and think, well, I've read a lot, so I know it. But without a corresponding experience, like hearing the violin played or traveling to Morocco, it's insufficient. But now think about the next level. I could hear a violin played or even a bluegrass fiddler. But if I've never played the violin, do I have any appreciation for the scale of the difficulty or what's involved in the music that's been written? And same with Morocco. I can experience it as a tourist. But if I've never lived there, if I've never encountered Moroccans on their terms without my, you know, tourist help. Where I'm just living there, trying to learn the language, trying to make friends. That's a whole different level. That's an encounter with the violin. That's an encounter with Morocco. And so, when we're talking about critical thinking, if you have not had all three of those reading, experience, and encounter, you cannot have a complete enough understanding to render a true opinion. You can have some feelings, you can have some beliefs, you can have some ideas. Most of us are spouting off, calling these things opinions, and all we've done is read some articles from the side we already agree with. We've had no experiences, no education, no encounters, and we're popping off like experts. If I had one hope after reading this book, it's that all of us would take a step back and recognize just how vast the amount of information is that's out there that we're being asked to comment on and to be very selective about when we actually have an opinion and that it's okay to not have one, to simply be interested in more information.
0: That, I'm, I'm curious. Okay, let me talk for a second. Then I'll ask you my question. Great. So I'm thinking about my experience leaving the religion of my childhood. And the very most difficult thing about leaving some of those beliefs behind is that I had to really be okay with admitting how much there's there's so much that I don't know. Yes. You know, that in 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 a lot of religions we're taught to say like, at least I know I can speak from my own experience. In the LDS church, we have testimony meetings where we get up and we say, I know this is true. I know this book is true. I know that I've had this experience from God. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. And to leave that behind and realize I don't know, I don't know anything. <laughs> it felt like the floor <laughs> dropped out from totally. under me, and that I was just free falling. And I, I think, I think that's what's so important. I almost said earlier, it's it's like the same as independent thinking, but I think it's different. What you're talking about this self aware thinking, and you have to maybe be a little bit more comfortable with this idea of I don't know. Do you address that in your book? Oh, all the way through. That that's yes, throughout. And honestly. None of us can
1: know the interior of another person. All the factors that sort of work together to create the security that a person feels about a certain perspective or belief. One of the reasons that your LDS church or other um, community groups that are more about faith or even um, belief systems, like ideological groups like La Leche League, where I was a leader for 10 years, or being a part of a certain educational model. The reason that they have community meetings to reinforce their beliefs is because they're not obvious. You know, you you have to go to these group, these Bible studies, these monthly meetings to reaffirm that this thing is true because it's very difficult to find consensus in the world. Most of these things are sort of ephemeral. They don't really have, you know, we don't all have a meeting every day to reaffirm that I live in a house. Mm -hmm. Someone drives by, they're like, that's her house. I don't have to have meetings with people who say, I've seen her house. I've been in it. I can prove that her house is really there. The more you're in a group that makes you continually reaffirm, the more you can recognize that there's a faith component here. And so when they're making you double down and say, you know, you are slowly actually brainwashing yourself. You're kind of indoctrinating yourself. And that can be true with anything. That can be true. I think it was true for me with marriage. My parents are divorced. So I was convinced that I would never get a divorce. So that, you know, so then we had rules in our marriage. We will never use the word divorce. We will never say divorce is on the table. We will never um, accept any solution to our difficulties that includes divorce. When you double down on something like that over time, you're actually foreclosing meaningful options. You become completely skewed against other information, other sources of experience, other ideas that could actually benefit you. And of course, eventually I ended up divorced, ironically, right? So I think we want to be very careful to have that humility. You know, I'm married. I don't want to be divorced is different than we will never mention the word divorce. These are, and we do this to our children. You know, we, we indoctrinate them every single day. Your child says to you, I hate the feel of water on my hands. And we're like, you have to wash your hands. Invisible germs are on them. (laughs) That is what science says. Instead of like spending a minute and investigating with your child, well, what is it about the water? And why don't you like getting your hands wet? And well, here's what I've learned from science, but you're right. We can't see the germs on your hands. They do look pretty clean. Shall we risk it? Should we just risk it for dinner? Like, Stripping back from this hyper authoritarian mode that we get in, in all of our contexts. I told a story the other day. My daughter in law had a home birth. I had five home births. So I'm I'm from that, you know, sort of kooky side of California too. And that was so gratifying, right? My daughter in law chooses to have a home birth, fully successful. And we completely expected her to breastfeed. I was a La Leche League leader, breastfed all my kids, never used a single bottle because I'm an ideologically driven person. And (laughs) sure enough, Her daughter was tongue-tied, did not have a successful breastfeeding experience, had to get donor breast milk for a year, bottle fed with donor milk, totally foreign to my experience. But you know what? Because of all this work I've done over the last decades, I even got to the point where I was like, this is what formula is for. It's okay if you get formula, but also I'll drive and get you donor milk. And also I love feeding this baby with a bottle and also you're not a failure. Like, I think that's where we want to go. It's okay to say, well, we know scientifically breast milk is best, but it is not okay to so strongly die on that hill that you alienate the people you love and you don't take advantage of other solutions and resources and opportunities that exist in the world. We've got to stop with these like doctrinaire ways of thinking where there's heresy and orthodoxy and nothing between because the world's more complicated than that.
0: This new phrase came into my awareness this last, like the last five months, which is yes, and, and I, if, if there's anything I get tattooed on me, that's what I want tattooed where I can see it because we, we had this culture of either, or either you're right or I'm right. I, you know, either, either breast is best or, you know, and to be able to say, like you were saying in this experience, yes, I'm a big proponent of breastfeeding and This is what formula is for. And it's both they're both okay. It's a huge perspective shift for our culture. It is.
1: And when we're talking about some of these big issues and they're huge, you know, whether we're talking about climate change or voting rights or things like gun rights or abortion. And those are scary topics for people to discuss with their children, with their friends, with their marriages, with their religious communities, because there are positions that help people know you deserve to be a member. That's the Mm -hmm. problem. We use these as like membership tests. Yeah, But but one of the things that I, I suggest in my book is imagine like a 10th grade class and your teacher says, let's have a debate on gun control. I suggest instead of having a debate, divide into two groups and first identify people who have experience with guns. So there might be someone who's from a family that hunts. There might be someone who's from a family whose sibling was killed in a school shooting. There might be someone whose dad is a police officer. There might be someone whose life was saved because a security guard killed a robber, right? Like there there are lots of gun experiences hiding in that classroom. And when we say, let's just have a debate, we aren't unearthing any of those. What we're doing is we're telling kids to take a premature position before they've heard from all these views. So what I recommend is, Putting these kids into two groups with a variety of experiences in each group, give them a list of meaningful questions to consider, not a position to take. So what should we do about X? What should we do in this situation? How do we think about hunting? How do we think about the law and protection? How do we think about self-defense? How do we think about the, the age and background checks for gun ownership and let both groups brainstorm and troubleshoot and problem solve. Make sure you give full floor to each person who has a personal experience and challenge the groups to include everyone in your solutions and in your opinions. And at the end, have both groups share and then ask the question, what are the essential features we've discovered that we need to consider whenever we talk about guns? Not which position do Mm. you take? But this is a completely different way of engaging in critical thinking. The way I put it is this. The danger is we keep thinking the goal is to get it right. And I hear this in all the critical thinking literature. Think like a scientist. Try to get it right. Be more interested in getting it right than being right. That's all bullshit. I don't agree with any of that. Our goal is to get it. Not to get it right, just to get it. To get why this issue matters to that person for these reasons and to account for that when we're discussing, when we're problem solving, when we're troubleshooting. If we could generate insight more than we focus on who's right or wrong, we would get so much further in our families, in our religious communities and in our, our culture. And that's why I read this book. <laughs>
0: Dang, <laughs> that's that's it. so powerful. That's so powerful. I can't read. I cannot wait to read it. Can we pre-order it? Yeah, please do. I would love it if you would. You can go to
1: RaisingCriticalThinkers.com. We've got all the buttons from the array of places you can purchase it. If you do pre-order before February 1st, you will get my annotated bibliography. So all the books that I use for research and my personal handwritten thoughts. And then an exclusive conversation with the woman who wrote the foreword. Her name is Dr. Barbara Oakley. And she's well known for uh, writing the book, Learning How to Learn, and she's a neuroscientist. So, we have a really great conversation about sort of my philosophical way of approaching it and her neurological background that supports the conclusions I've drawn. So,
0: I'm going to go pre order it as soon as we get off this call. I'm so excited. I, so
1: glad you do.
0: That would be great.
1: And we're talking about all these things over on Instagram. My Instagram account is Julie Brave Writer. And then, of course, if you are interested in Brave Writer, you can go to bravewriter.com for online classes and materials if any of that caught your interest. We support both homeschoolers and kids in traditional schools, so don't feel like you have to be a homeschooler to use our materials or classes.
0: And I use I use your Brave Writer program and, and love it. It's just an easy fun it's fun for parents and for kids it takes so much of the and this is also what i'm about right letting go of perfectionism it takes so much of that out of it and brings so much of the joy and creative process back in so i can't i can't recommend your stuff highly enough oh thank you awesome (laughs) if there's is there one takeaway we talked about a lot of things today (laughs) if there's one like big takeaway that you really want to leave with the listeners today what would that be
1: your relationship with your kids is more important than any position you hold, any belief you have, any fantasy about their future you cherish. And your relationship is only as good as there is room for both of you to be in it. So it matters that you show up as yourself and it matters that you allow your kids to be who they are. You cannot be the community that excludes your child
0: from membership. That's a beautiful summary. Okay. Thanks for joining me today. To get more nurturing around living an authentic life, you can follow me on Instagram at justbeyourbadself or subscribe to my weekly newsletter at justbeyourbadself.com. Your invitation this week? See if you can get a little more comfortable with the phrase, I don't know. Next time your body goes into fight or flight mode over an opinion piece on social media, don't respond to the post. Go journal about it instead. This may be the hardest invitation I've ever issued on my podcast, so good luck. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to leave a review, subscribe to the podcast or share it. You have my heart. Remember, you are enough right now in this moment. That's it from me. Now, just be your bad self.